This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Amy, uh, there's a brand new podcast out there. Um, if you're a parent or you're thinking of becoming one or you just want to laugh at two new parents, here's a podcast from you from our friends over at Stitcher. It's called Josie and Johnny are having a baby with you. And the premise of this podcast is actually pretty great. Um, it's comedians Josie Long and Johnny Donahue, and they're having a baby. Totally not planned, and they're trying to prepare for the birth of their first child. And I know going through it, it's the most daunting experience. You know it's like you know that your car is going to crash, but you have to be in the car and you can't control it in any way. You're like It's going off the road and you just want somebody to tell you how to react once it does. And this podcast really gets into it. Each episode, they sit down with actors and writers and entertainers who are also parents to help them figure things out. People like John Hodgman, uh, Jane Marie. I love Jane Marie. Uh, Eugene Merman and Rachel Sklar. They uh, have funny conversations about what to do from people who have been there, people who haven't been there. Uh, and I think it's a, a great way to kind of celebrate this insane time in your life when you are on the precipice of creating uh, another human being. So listen and subscribe to Josie and Johnny are having a baby with you in your podcast app right now. The year is 1950 and the things people will do not to pay their auto insurance. The movie, Sunset Boulevard. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I am Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time, the 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up and how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Amy, I'm so excited to talk about Sunset Boulevard, a classic, classic film. Indeed, my good man. Indeed, it is a classic. But we should talk about something else first. Yes. Because we're going to actually break out of this like one film every episode format for the month of February because you know what we have been doing this almost a year and it is about time to take stock 
of 2018. And we figured Oscar month was a good time to do it. Yes, we are going to be celebrating the films of 2018 in a special four-part miniseries where we're talking about the future. Which of the films from 2018 would actually make a future list of the AFI? And we're going to do it in a kind of an interesting way. Because here's the deal, like, as we've been doing the show, you know, Paul and me and you out there, we've been realizing that there are a few different factors that put a film on an AFI list. One, it was a gigantic juggernaut hit at the time, like Ben-Hur. Yes. Two, it was a critical darling that nobody really paid attention to, but crept all the way up to the top of the list. Like, like people got wind of it years later. Years later, like Citizen Kane. Exactly. Or three, it's a film that everybody loved a lot, didn't really like rock the boat in any sort of particular way, but then somehow, boom, you're the searchers. So what we're going to do is kind of tackle all these types of films in each episode. Our first episode is going to be the big Ben-Hur movies. What are the movies that made the most money? They had the biggest spectacle. We're going to kind of examine what really popped in a major way in 2018. And I cannot wait to talk to you all about my love and fascination of Aquaman. And then in episode two, we're going to look at the critical darlings. We're going to look at the films that were at the very top of the Metacritic list and the films that Paul and I, as critics ourselves, yes, really loved this year. Yeah, we want to maybe even turn you on to some movies that aren't getting that much attention this year. And I think that's kind of fun, too, because as we get closer to the Oscars, everything kind of gets narrowed down to what the critical best are. But there are a lot of omissions. Exactly, which is why in episode three, we will have you, the people who love movies, you guys calling in and leaving messages about the films that you think have a good shot for AFI recognition many, 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 many years in the future when I have a long beard. Exactly. And <laughs> and I oddly get all my hair back. It's very weird. <laughs> the future's a fascinating place. And then we're going to wrap up our miniseries with a little post-Oscar recap show uh, that will happen the Monday after the Oscars. Just a chance to kind of look at what Got the awards, what didn't get the awards, and where we kind of think these films will hold up in the grand scheme of cinema in the future. Exactly. And also in that episode, we're going to be talking about the results of the Unspoolies, which is on the Facebook group. They have now launched their own awards where people are voting for their award contenders in each of the categories, including actress, including all the good stuff. So if you want to get in on that, that's happening over on the Facebook page for Unspooled. So we have four really special episodes for you all. It's also a chance for you to catch up on some of the movies that you might not have watched uh, for the podcast yet. And uh, we'll be talking about the current state of affairs in film. I am excited. Amy cannot wait to do this. The current state of affairs. I know. So official. I feel a little bit official because we're talking about Sunset Boulevard and we're talking about uh, the lead actress in this. Norma Desmond, who is a very official person. And what better way to get into talking about this than listening to some of you do your best Norma Desmond impressions. Uh, Take a listen to what we got. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. The Russo Brothers. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Winding Refn. I am ready for the extreme close-up on my feet, Mr. Tarantino. I'm ready for my close-up, Ms. Duvernay. I'm ready for my 237 takes of my close-up, Mr. Kubrick. I'm ready for my unbearably long, unbelievably static master shot, Mr. Jarmusch. I'm ready for my close-up, any female director. I'm ready for my close-up, M. Night Shyamalan. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Demi. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Brooks. That's Mel Brooks, by the way. I'm ready for my Hitchcock Zoom, Mr. 
Hitchcock. <laughs> Those were great. By the way, Paul, I have to say... You know, I realized that I had the line wrong because this is one of those moments in Hollywood where, like, there's a famous line, play it again, Sam. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, where it's not actually what they said. Yeah. And here she says, Mr. DeMille, I am ready for my close-up. Totally different reversal in a way. I mean, wait, hold on. In the movie, she says, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up, which is... A subtle difference, but I think a less punchy way of delivering it, to be honest. Well, look, I, I don't feel Billy bad Wild- for misremembering it. No, if Billy Wilder was here, he would be very upset with you. He'd say, say the line as I wrote it. God damn it. But he would say it with a much more intense accent. Um, but it is actually one of the most misquoted lines in Hollywood history. I believe it's number seven on the list of misquoted lines. You know what? I think that is appropriate for a movie that is all about how we do not properly remember the things of Hollywood past. All right, Amy. Well, let's get into the past. Let's travel back to 1950 for Sunset Boulevard. The year is 1950. The post-war baby boom was just beginning. The median family income was $3,300 a year, and milk was still being delivered to the doorstep. Unfortunately, paranoia about communism made a lot of good people act bad. Racism was rampant in many parts of the country, but especially in the South. Mickey Mantle, Marilyn Monroe, and Mickey Mouse were the most famous stars. Movies are still popular, but this is the year that TV started taking a chunk out of the film industry's revenue. American families are finally getting out of the Great Depression and moving into the suburbs and watching Gunsmoke and anything with Lucille Ball. James Dean gets his big break in a Pepsi commercial, and Sunset Boulevard comes out. It's ranked number 16 on AFI's 2007 list and number 12 on the original list in 1998. Amy, tell us a little bit about Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard! It is Hollywood looking at itself in the year 1950. It is the story of a somewhat cynical younger writer uh, played by William Holden who runs into an older silent film star. Her name is Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson, an actual silent film star, and gets kind of caught into living into her house as he keeps trying to step out into the great beyond of hip 1950s Hollywood, lured back to her palace until he is dead. And we know he dies because he's dead in the very first frame of the movie. Yeah, I mean, right from the get-go, this movie is so provocative. I mean, whether it's the camera panning down to see Sunset Boulevard on the gutter, you know, it's like you're seeing it down there first. You're not seeing it up on the street sign. You're seeing it like written on on the curb side. And then you see this dead man in a pool who you find out very quickly is narrating the movie and who is our lead character. It, it just pulls you in immediately. And I think on this watch, I realized... This is more of a horror movie than it is a drama. I mean, this this reminds me in certain ways of Misery or even Let the Right One In. Ah, I was going to say Let the Right One In, too. Really? I was thinking about that movie so much on this watch. Ah, we're, well, we're definitely going to have to get into that. Yeah, no, I was looking at it because there's so many similarities. We should talk about that a little bit, yeah. We will definitely talk about that. I mean, but this movie, it's iconic Hollywood it's iconic Sunset Boulevard. Like, yeah. I, I remember um, the day after I moved to L.A., I had to go to Sunset Boulevard uh-huh. because it was where the old L.A. Weekly offices were, R.I.P. when they were in Hollywood, and just freaking out. Like, I took a right onto Sunset Boulevard. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is the Sunset Boulevard. And now you're like, all right, Sunset Boulevard. We're, out, we're on Sunset Boulevard right now. Yeah, I know. It doesn't feel as grand when you actually live in L.A. Like, it's just another main street. And by the way, the house not on Sunset Boulevard, actually on Irving, uh, which is close to Wilshire Boulevard. Yeah, it's closer to Hancock Park. Yeah. <laughs> also very, very, very posh houses. I used to have to tutor the rich kids who live in those houses. They're oh, really? unbelievable. I think the thing 
that I was kind of amazed by in this watch, and it's kind of a spoiler at the end, that the entire time I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, Norma Desmond, she's so old. And, you know, here's this young man. But at the end, they reveal she's 50. Like, (laughs) and the way that she is treated is as if she is like this old monster, which, I mean, it's a much more damning story knowing that she's 50 the entire way through in a way. Yeah, it's kind of funny because, you know, Gloria Swanson's 50. Uh, William Holden is like 31 years right. old when he makes this movie. And Gloria Swanson was like a huge health nut. Right. Massive. Like she would bring her own food to dinner parties with like sprouted bread and homemade almond butter. She was a vegetarian. She looks great. And so you look at them together. And to me, I'm a little bit like, there's an age difference. I mean, I if this was like a Clint Eastwood movie reversed, he'd be like, that's nothing. She's practically my sister. <laughs> well, you know, Montgomery Cliff was supposed to play uh, the role of our screenwriter. And he dropped out because he didn't think he could be convincing at romancing an older woman. And then it later came out that he actually was having an affair with a much older woman, uh, Libby Hoffman, another actress. And was afraid that the press would find out about them and it would like kind of wreck his image. So they cast William Holden in the part uh, and he actually looked a little bit older than Montgomery Clift. And that was kind of an issue for Billy Wilder because he felt like it didn't show the age difference enough. And I will say on this watch, I, I kind of agree with that. It doesn't seem like, wow, this, you know, it doesn't feel, maybe, maybe also we've grown as a culture. I don't know. No, I kind of agree with that, too. Like, on this watch, I was kind of having the same mental game you were, which was recasting the William Holden role. Right. I just kept recasting him as somebody, like, slightly younger, um, maybe less cynical, because, like, the character himself is so cynical about Hollywood. He's already jaded when the movie opens. He's been trying to sell pictures forever. He narrates the whole film in this, like, very cynical voice of, like, Hollywood, these people, blah, blah, blah. He hates everything. He hates her house. It smells crazy. He hates all the people who work in Hollywood. He's so cynical. What if he was more of a 24-year-old kid who just sold his first screenplay and was like really excited? Oh, golly, mama, I'm in Hollywood. But I don't think that the movie works on that level because he needs to be jaded. He's almost giving up. And what he kind of finds is, I guess, comfort in failure, right? Because at the when we kind of meet him, his car is going to be repossessed. He's trying to get money. And one of the most gut-wrenching scenes, like trying to get money from his agent, his agent is playing golf. It's like, I won't give you that money. He's like, you'll work better if, you, <laughs> if you're poor. And you just feel for this character who's literally on the verge of going back home to become a copy editor in Dayton, Ohio. And he's at this crossroads because he kind of finds this comfort and stability in a life that he's artistically shackled but has money and access to things and then is kind of becoming creatively alive when he interacts with Nancy, who is like the version of him. It's almost like he's in the middle of these two parts of his own life. I feel like you need him to be on the outs to even get into this position because a young up-and-comer Nancy would never get in this situation. Nancy would never stay with her. Like he's doing it because he's like, ah, I have nothing to lose. I have nowhere to go. I hear that. Although I do also think it's interesting to kind of frame his narration as a person who's so depressive you can't trust anything he says. You know, we did Double Indemnity, another Billy Wilder script. Mm -hmm. And we were talking the whole time about how Fred McMurray, like, can't really trust his opinion on things. He's wandering in being like, blah, 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 baby. Right. You're like, okay, this guy's flagged. And I was thinking this whole time, like, 
William Holden's Joe Gillis is super flagged in what we should buy of how he describes things. You know, he's so negative in the way he describes, like, her beauty regimen. Right. And I kept thinking, you know, somebody else could narrate her whole beauty regimen when she thinks she's going to be a movie star again and say, look how great she's doing taking care of herself. She's really dedicated to her job, going to bed at 9 p.m. What a good actress she is. When you look at what she's trying to accomplish to be ready for the role, she's very on top of her game and, and trying to make it work. You know, she's not like, I'm drunk and Lindsay right. Lowe handing out. And he describes it in such a cynical way that I it's interesting to me to be caught torn between hearing his words and sort of disagreeing with them. Well, he kind of hates himself for being with her because Norma presents, for the most part, as just someone who wants attention, who's someone who is lonely. But, you know, she isn't abusive. It wasn't like, you know, she's not Kathy Bates in misery. She's not keeping him there by force. She's keeping them there. And I think he's upset that he's letting himself be kept there. So he definitely views her more negatively. Some people say that the way that they did that scene where they're showing her beauty regimen is the reason why Billy Wilder and his screenwriting partner, Charles Brackett, broke up. Charles Brackett felt that he was being too truthful, too harsh in showing this side of Norma, like what you'd have to go to to be beautiful again. And by showing her going through all these like treatments, now we look at it, it just seems like, oh yeah, that's what any normal actor or actress would go to to get ready for the screen. Like, you know, all these, you know, like weird machines and, you know, and sweating out saunas. Uh, but well, he, even normal people in my neighborhood, I walk by a sign all the time for a blood facial. Oh, do you know what that is? No. They like, if I'm understanding it correctly, they take the blood out of your body uh-huh. and then they remix it somehow and I inject it. it remix, your face. remix. <laughs> uh, but yeah, blood facial is just a thing happening on Vermont and Koreatown, so well, it must know, be everywhere. I, I know that they're even doing like things with hair transplant now, where they take out people's plasma and they put it on your head, and that helps regrow hair. There's a lot of things. We are in Hollywood. We are a part of it. That's why I think when you watch this movie, what I thought was so interesting was how everything is roughly the same, just a little bit more updated. But basically, Brackett thought that he was abusing these people. And throughout the whole movie, you know, the fact that Max, her servant, Norma's servant in the movie, is actually a famous director who is playing a failed famous director. I mean, they are very much... Uh, you know, playing themselves. I mean, throughout this whole movie, you know, I didn't realize that DeMille was DeMille until I watched it. I was like, oh, that guy played DeMille. It was great. It's like, it's DeMille. And then Buster Keaton's in it as her poker buddy. Like, he added a level of, like, reality to it, which I think in 1950 must have blown people's minds to make a movie about Hollywood with the people. I mean, yeah, there's even little things in here that I didn't get because I wasn't alive in 1950 to know what was happening. But, you know, when they go to the um, party, the the casual party, everybody's having fun and they're around the piano and they're singing a song called Buttons and Bows. Right. That was a huge song that had been in a movie that had just won an Oscar. And the people who are playing, who played it in real life in that movie in The Pale Face, who wrote it, are the people behind the piano. So it's like if you watched a movie today and it's like Damien Chazelle at a piano being like City of Stars. Yeah. You would just know that. You would get that reference. Well, the same, going back to that, her assistant, servant, butler, whatever you want to call him, Max, you know, so his his name is Eric von Stroheim, and he directed Gloria Swanson in a movie called Queen Kelly. And that's the movie that Norma watches on the screen. Now, the actor, 
who played Max, Eric von Stroheim, was kicked off that movie because Gloria Swanson and him got into a fight. And so by playing that and having him play that and then you reveal later that he was a director, it's like my mind is exploding retroactively knowing like I just never knew it was on that level. It's crazy. And like I love that you noticed that Queen Kelly thing because, I mean, there's just this huge story behind that. So Gloria Swanson. Massive silent film star. I mean, you can tell from all the pictures in the house that are just of Gloria Swanson herself, which yeah. was a massive fashion star. I call her, I said fashion star, which was sort of like a Freudian slip, but also not because that was what she was really known for is she was this amazing woman at wearing clothes. And she always wore like the biggest, most elaborate, crazy clothes. And if you look at the fan magazines from the 1920s, everybody's like, if I was as fashionable as Gloria Swanson. And what she was known for was being kind of this daredevil. In film, a little bit. Here, there's a little bit where when she goes to see DeMille, he calls her young fellow, which is what he called her in all of their films together in real life that they made. I love that because it was such an odd choice of words to call her. He's like, hey, young young fellow. fellow. And I was like, oh, what is that? Yeah. Yeah, because she was really brave. She did this movie with DeMille called Male and Female. Most of her movies kind of had this arc where she was like either rich or a prostitute. Okay. um, And like either punished or probably punished double, punished a lot for (laughs) whatever she did for being like rich and glamorous and getting to walk into rooms wearing like all these ostrich feathers. But so she did this film called Male and Female and there's a dream sequence in it where she lies down on the floor and a lion caresses her back and they shot that with a real lion. Whoa. Yeah, here's her describing that, by the way. Now to make the lion roar, the two trainers are flashing him with their whips and he's roaring. Now let me tell you the sensation. When you can't look at danger and your eyes are closed... And here he is with his paws, weight on the back of my bare back, because I'm bare to the waist. His hot breath, my, if I had any fuzz on my body at all, it was all standing right smack up. My heart, I don't know what it was doing. Then when he roared, it was like thousands of vibrators all over you. It was the most awesome, dangerous, fascinating, I suppose danger is always this way. I don't know. I mean, that voice, by the way, sounds nothing like Norma Desmond, right? Well, that's what I was really blown away by when I watched some interviews with her. I was like, first of all, she is beautiful. Like this interview that you just played was from 1980. And I would argue she doesn't even look as old as Norma Desmond looks in Sunset Boulevard. They actually painted lines on her face, I think, to get her older. And at one point, they were like, they wanted to age her up to 60. And she's like, I don't want to play 60. I'll play 50. Uh, yeah, they. she looked so good in that movie that she started to do Jergens commercials afterwards. Wow. With that, where the tagline was like, Gloria Swanson's 52. Can you believe it? I mean, this movie gave her a comeback Ish, I mean, comeback isn't really the right word because she had to her she had and I one. hate that word comeback, <laughs> which is like fair also for Gloria Swanson. Yeah. But yeah, like her voice, she was she was cultured, she was posh, she wasn't this like deranged monster. No, and it made you realize how much of a great actress she was. She reminded me of a villain from the 1960s Adam West Batman. She had a very, like, a lot of hands and a lot of eyes and arched brows. And it was, but what a great choice because it was so performative. It You understood why she was a star of the silent screen. And I think she really leaned into it. And when you see her here and you hear her talk, she's so naturalistic. Yeah, and what I kept thinking about watching her performance is, you know, 
she's got her neck kind of like in this rigor mortis position yeah. and her teeth are always bared, which I think was just sort of her thing anyway, yeah. the, the bare teeth. But she's doing these things with her fingers, like these like spidery. Yes, it's hands. always like, yeah. She's a little bit like li- Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. She's a little bit Nosferatu. She's very, to me, watching this movie this time, I was like, oh, basically this is where Tim Burton got so much of everything he ever did. By the right? way. Catwoman and Batman Returns, I would argue, was very similar. You know, the way that Michelle Pfeiffer kind of like, you know, like, I, I feel like there's a similarity there. Oh, I could see that. I was yeah. thinking of when um, in Beetlejuice, the banister in the house comes alive. Uh-huh. Because the banister here, that draping heavy oh, cord, yeah. it looks like a snake. You know, everything in the house is all winding and leafy and twisted and Ooh, alive. And yeah. so when the Beetlejuice house comes alive, it feels so much like the mansion to me. I like that. But anyways, back to the 20s. So because Gloria was in a lot of courtesan roles or women who were, like, grabbed by handsome princes and taken away and become, like, prostitutes, she kept getting into trouble with the Hayes Code when the Hayes Code gets more and more powerful. Because here she is making these elaborate epics where she gets to be in costumes and have, like, huge period sets. And she's spending a ton of money and they're getting increasingly positioned as being at risk of being boycotted in theaters and banned because of Hayes. So she goes through this whole drama with this movie called Sadie Thompson. It's one of her prostitute movies. It's very expensive. William Hayes was like, it's going to be okay. And then he was like, no, it's not. And there are all these threats of boycotting. When it finally got into theaters, it made its money back. It was a decent hit. But so then she does Queen Kelly with Von Stroheim. And she doesn't realize that there's this scene where her character in Queen Kelly is supposed to go into a dance hall that to Von Stroheim, the dance hall was really a brothel. Got it. And so if she did this brothel scene with Von Stroheim, when she's paying for this movie, she's like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to get into this fight with Hayes all over again. I might not win it this time. This movie can't get made the way that he's trying to do it. And he's going, like, twice times over budget. Like, I'll just let her talk about it. This is her talking about it. I uh, excused myself, so Mr. Von Stroheim excused me, and I went to my bungalow, and I called New York immediately and said... You better get out here, but fast, to the people who were concerned and who had been lending me the money, bankers. I don't think we have a picture because a lot of it's going to be on the cutting room floor because Will Hayes' office did not okay this version. Plus the fact that we have 20,000 feet of the first third and how we're going to cut that down and make any sense, I don't know. And then I relaxed. and. Of course, everybody rushed out there. There was a lot of hysterics and a great deal of... I I never saw, incidentally, Mr. Von Stroheim from that day until I went backstage, oh, many years later, I think in the 40s, when he was doing Arsenic and Old Lace, and said hello to him. We never mentioned Queen Kelly. And then the next time I saw him was when he was on the set, Sunset Boulevard. Playing Max. Which I love that because that means there was some tension on oh, the set. Yeah. If they hadn't talked in, uh, hold on, how can I do math off the top of my head? I'm bad at it. At least 20 years? Well, it makes you realize kind of what a provocateur Billy Wilder was because he clearly knew this. Like he, none of this is a happy accident. I mean, Von Stroheim is not by trade an actor. Yes, he acted a handful of times in roles that were very similar to himself, disgruntled directors. Uh, but this is clearly a setup to kind of create a very engaging uh, tone in the film. And 
I think it works, uh, you know, especially as you kind of understand it. And especially if you're maybe a movie fan, you know, it's it's ripe for the gossip column, which is even great because even at the end, Hedda Hopper's in this film playing herself. Also great. She's but, actually good. Hedda Hopper's really good in like her, like she has a line and then she has a sad face. Her yeah. sad face is I thought very convincing. I love it. Well, I think that their relationship on Sunset Boulevard, Stroheim and Gloria Swanson was a little bit better. This is Gloria Swanson talking about working with Stroheim on uh, Sunset Boulevard. started Sunset Boulevard. We didn't have a finished script. Von Stroheim, who couldn't help himself, he was creative. He made suggestions, and I can remember Billy Wilder saying, oh, that's wonderful, but it doesn't further the story, and we don't have the footage for it. But he came up with one. He came up with a magnificent idea that the fan mail that was sent to me, if you will recall, I thought was fan mail. He was writing them. This was von Stroheim's idea. And this was a magnificent idea. It was wonderful. Ah, we had nice times on the set, and I have wonderful recollections. And then after the picture, I met him here in France, you know. We even talked about doing something about Queen Kelly, making a new story around it seeing if we couldn't save this beautiful material, which he had done where I was a convent girl. But unfortunately, I lived in America, he lived here, and then he left us. So a sad little end to their relationship there. But it seemed like it got better towards the end, or maybe that's all Hollywood bullshit. (laughs) I don't know, but just watching her clips, like if you if you guys want to go and look for them yourself, yeah. my God, she is so good with her face. Those eyes, oh. the way she opens and closes them. Well, she's so put together and I think maybe unjustly compared to the character of Norma Desmond, but she right, was- It like rewrites over the memory of the real actress. Right, because she was not this. I mean, she was- Living in New York in a in a beautiful townhouse, she, you know, she had like a line of cosmetics. She had her own dress patterns. She had a radio show. You know, she was touring in plays. I mean, she definitely she had a TV show for yeah. a little bit. She did this thing. Did you know about this? That in World War II, she uh, created this company, Multi Prizes, and what that was was she invited. Jewish inventors and Jewish scientists who were living in Europe to come to America. She got them work visas. So she was getting Jewish people out of Europe to help invent things. I mean, she's this incredible woman. And also, by the way, she wasn't that bad at transitioning to sound. She had a movie called, I think, The Trespass very early on Mm -hmm. in her, where she she did it both silent and, like, with words. She's pretty great. I even pulled a little clip of that. What makes you so nervous, Jeff? You don't know Dad. Oh, darling, if he's going to make me look like that, I don't want to. Well, this is serious. You realize what we've done, don't you? What? Well, we, we, we eloped. We ran away. We, we got married. We've got a fight on our hands. Oh, darling, we're two to one. We can fight the world. But I wouldn't want to fight Dad. I'm his only son. I'm the only thing he's got. You're my husband, and you're the only thing I've got. Yes, I know. Now you'd better get dressed. I'll go on in. I know Dad. You can't keep him waiting. I mean, that's just to say she could have transitioned. So but I'd she kind establishing of establishing pulled- that. But she kind of pulled herself out of the studio system very much like her character did as well. Like she stopped performing. She wasn't kicked out, right? Because I think what you were saying with the issue with the Hayes Act and stuff, she just was getting a little bit cornered. She did it. She was rich. I'd always hoped like if I ever became like really, really rich at doing something, I would just stop doing it and then not have to do it until I'm bad (laughs) at it again. I mean, I don't understand why people can't get out while they're on top. Well, um, talking about her interaction with uh, Cecil B. DeMille, 
You know, Gloria Swanson got paid. What do you think she got paid for this movie? I don't know. $50,000, okay, for 12 weeks of shooting. Cecil B. DeMille, what do you think he gets paid oh, for God. one day of shooting? Oh, God, I'm scared. <laughs> $10,000. Wow. For one day of shooting. And I thought that was, like, amazing that, like, he was the get. Like, that's a lot of money to spend on essentially just a cameo. And when he had to come back for a reshoot, he wanted another 10000 They didn't give it to him. They gave him a $6,000 Cadillac and a $3,000 bonus. So they gave him 10000 just differently. But what I loved about it and I love about that scene was I was like, oh, what a great choice to make him sweet. He's not um, a dick. Like, I think in our mind, you would play that scene with her coming in and him going, get out of here. You, you're nothing or avoiding her. And he plays it more like you would actually play it if you were this actual person. You know? It's true. And yet it's so sad that, you know, when she comes onto his set, somebody puts the spotlight on her. Everybody sees that she's there. It's like a heat lamp. Everybody gravitates towards her chair where she's right. sitting. And then he comes back in and he's like, turn that away from there. Yeah. And the light goes and then the people go and it's so heartbreaking. Well, there's so much symbolism in that scene. I mean, she's sitting down in the director's chair. She's on her perch and a microphone kind of comes to her, you know, hits the feather on her head. She kind of swats away the microphone. It's a beautiful, small little moment. But just like, you know, the silent film star, you know, swatting away the microphone. You know, it's but that whole scene, you know, just shows a the amount of respect that she commands. And, you know. I heard this story once about Anthony Hopkins, and I I hope I'm not spreading a rumor, but uh, someone, you know, had said to Anthony Hopkins, like, why haven't you worked recently? And he said, well, my agents never call me. And he recently switched agents. And that's why I think you're seeing Anthony Hopkins working so much more, whether it's, you know, Transformers or that great new series he just did on uh, Amazon, which is King Lear, I believe. But like, it's funny because if Anthony Hopkins walked in anywhere, people are like, oh, Anthony Hopkins. But- you forget about these people sometimes, you know, as you get older, you kind of go to the the back of the mind. And I think they did a great job of showing that, like, yes, she commands this respect. She's not like, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? No, everyone knows exactly who she is and they want to be with her and, and, you know, be by her presence. But they all go back to their own lives. Yeah. I mean, apparently this is maybe apocryphal, but I think it is somewhat true mm-hmm. that part of what inspired the story is that. In 1948, Billy Wilder, who was, you know, still fairly young at this time, he goes to a party and he's a Romanoffs, which at the time was like, oh, the swanky place. All the cool people are Romanoffs. And I know. I saw the Amazon series. No big deal. (laughs) (laughs) And he's hanging out um, and he sees that there's this sort of like old disheveled man in the corner Uh who's like getting really drunk and people are sort of treating him with scorn. The wife of one of the people he's with just calls him like a silly old drunk and tells him to get away. And he's like, who is that? And someone goes, oh, just D.W. Griffith. And he was like, what? You're D.W. Griffith, the guy who like is even name checked here as being one of the people who founds Hollywood, who we'll get to with intolerance later. You know, we'll get to with the whole thing. But yeah, so that just kind of was this little seed in his brain. And D.W. Griffith died a few months after that, and his funeral was pretty much half empty. You know, it's it's interesting. Like, this idea that I look back at 1950s Hollywood, and I'm like, oh, it's a classic era. It's so long ago, it feels to me. But for it to, in 1950, I already feel like it had been through a lifetime already, that there was this old era that had already been forgotten. And yeah. I don't know if you ever feel this way. Like, I feel like 
I'm always fighting this tendency to lump everything black and white into this one chunk. Mm-hmm. And then you have to exhale and be like, wait, nope, piece it apart. Here we go. But that, like, even last week, you know, we're talking to Peter Bogdanovich about, like, quote unquote, old Hollywood, which would, like, encompass when Sunset Boulevard was made. And Sunset Boulevard is already looking back at an older Hollywood still. And this idea of just, like, Hollywood retelling itself. I mean, were you thinking about Singing in the Rain? I a was lot? literally just typing in Singing in the Rain on my computer just to see what year it came out because that's 1952. This is 1950. Like, these are two stories very close in when they were made talking about a time that I guess it's on the mind of people in in Hollywood. I mean, Singing in the Rain is, I think, the fun-loving version of this. Uh, but there's so many similarities between this. Yeah, like people just grasping, like, we don't want to forget this history. Or realizing you had just forgotten it. You just let D.W. Griffith die and nobody cared. Right. So like, oh, my God, we have to pin this down while we can. We, you know, while you can still go to Mary Pickford and be like, would you like to be in this movie? And then be like, I should not ask her that. That is terrible. <laughs> well, I mean, this movie was going through so many different incarnations. You know, like, obviously, they they ended on Gloria Swanson, who I think is fantastic. But they... You know, they gave it to Greta Garbo, who just returned the script without comment. She later let them use her name, but was so offended by the way that they used her name. She said, I thought that Billy Wilder and I were friends because they used her in the past tense, not in the the current tense. And uh, I think Mae West was the original idea for this because after that party, he wanted to, you know, he wanted to create this idea of a comedy, like the comedy of this, you know, it was going to be. Marlon Brando and Mae West in Sunset Boulevard. I mean, what is that movie? You know, like if it was going to be a bigger comedy, but I think it, this movie lends to be more of a thriller and, it, and it, it's a psychological thriller in a way because this house is trapping this man in his own mind. Uh, I'm fascinated by how it gets in the psychology of old Hollywood too, because these people are trapped in their own ways. They're not they're not getting out of their own ways. So they're creating their own obstacles, which I think is something that Singing in the Rain doesn't touch on. Singing in the Rain touches on people want to get in that next stage, but this is like how your mind can stop you. I mean, I would love to see this movie with Marlon Brando. I mean, can really? you just imagine, especially because then it becomes so much about different oh, types of performances yes. shifting from one style of acting to another one, you mm-hmm. know? Shifting from like the theatrical style of acting that you know, everybody's sort of doing it here. There isn't like the new naturalism in this movie We where you'd really see that contrast if a Brando showed up. I, I think that this movie flirts with it. I, I, You know, Billy Wilder films, I feel like, have this kind of dialogue that you can really just jump into. It doesn't feel as stilted. The performances don't feel uh, typical to what you're talking about. Not, it's not naturalistic. It's kind of in between old and naturalistic. I don't know, because I think when you watch Joe and Nancy and they're relationship, it's kind of, it plays very real at points, you know? Well, what's interesting is, like, I feel like his characters in this film are also slipping into that old style of performance on purpose. Okay. You know that if Norma Desmond is still living in the theatrical world where she was, but everybody keeps slipping into it. I mean, here, listen to this one scene, actually, where Joe is hanging out with Betty Schaefer at a party, and they go from talking sort of naturally-ish about well, should we do the script? It's an idea. She's sort of insulting him. It's at the New Year party. To going into this theatrical character. No, Philip, no. We must be strong. You're still wearing the uniform of the Coldstream Guards. Furthermore, you can have the phone now. Okay. Suddenly, I find myself terribly afraid of losing you. You won't. 
I'll get us a refill of this horrible liquid. You'll be waiting for me. With a wildly beating heart. Life can be beautiful. It's true. It's like they're taking the piss out of the old school Hollywood. And I love that they're also commenting on what makes interesting film. I mean, the entire, you know, I guess B or C plot of this film is that, you know, Joe has a nugget of a good script, but his scripts that he's selling right now are a little bit hackier and probably going back to that old school of Hollywood. Like he talks about, uh, I mean, I love (laughs) that one pitch where he goes, it happened in the bullpen, the story of a woman. And I was like that, like, like those ideas, it felt like very old Hollywood. And he was kind of getting a rejection of those ideas and what, you know, Nancy brings out and it was like, no, tell the story that's, that means something to you, that you connect with, that you feel, you know, is a part of you, like his teacher. And, and I, and maybe that's, you know, Billy Wilder saying like, let's get away from these, you know, these big fake stories and let's tell real stories, something that we can connect to that's relatable. I like that idea. And also, you know, when he's pitching that baseball story, when he's in the room at the very beginning, and he's like, Bill Demarest. I mean, Bill Demarest, I actually didn't know his name. And I was Mm -hmm. like, who was Bill Demarest? And then I realized, oh, he's that guy who is in the Jolson story. He plays like the mentor of Al Jolson. Oh, wow. And he had just won the um, Academy, an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor for it. And I was like, oh, that is as though if this movie happened today, we'd be like, get me J.K. Simmons. Oh, it's exactly the same kind of analog. You know, Paul, we have a whole series coming up that's going to be kind of fancy and formal and Oscar-y. And are you prepared to look fancy during this next month of shows? Do you mean, do I have a tux? Yeah. Because when you go to fancy events, you need a tux. And you know what? Honestly, when you go out, you need to look good. How many people out there are just going with what they got in the closet? That suit that you wear to funerals and to weddings. Yeah, I know you wear them to both. Why don't you step up your game? And this is why I love our friends at theblacktux.com. All right, so theblacktux.com is an amazing resource for men because it allows you to basically rent great-looking suits and tuxedo styles that would be normally wildly expensive to buy, and you might only really only wear once. So with Black Tux, you rent them online, and you can blow it out for your big one-time event, and then you can take your style to the next level too. Okay, here's the thing. I love this idea. I watch women have so many great services that deliver clothes, whether it's, you know, these beautiful dresses and things like this. But guys don't have it. Guys have to be like, I got my suit and that's it. It's a suit. And I better hope this suit stays fancy forever. I know. And that's why I think you oftentimes don't take a chance in getting something bold because, you know, it has to fit a bunch of different events. But Black Tux It gives you this opportunity to really let your style be your guide. You know what? Is it in fashion right now? They'll have it and you can send it back and you don't have to worry about wearing it again. It doesn't have to be practical. It could be fun. And you can try it on at home. You can see if the fit and feel of the quality works for you. And if it does, then you can kind of put it on hold months before your event is taking place. And then the suit will arrive 14 days before your event so you can make sure everything is perfect. And if it isn't, They'll give you a replacement right away. Returns are simple. Just wear it, turn heads, and then send it back three days after your event. You don't have to do it the next morning when you're hungover. You can just put it in a couple days later. Shipping is free both ways. These are good-looking outfits. And I think, honestly, if we're talking about renting clothes, suits are the way to go because, you know what? They stay looking good at all times. The tuxes look great. And 
you should always have a fresh, clean tux. I love my tux. I've rented a tux from this place, and it looks good. People give you a compliment. You know what? Even just to have the latest has a little bit more of a shine to it. You carry yourself a little bit bigger. You kind of feel like Chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest after he makes that basket. You walk with a little bit of pride in your step. And now you can walk with some pride in your step. Get $20 off your purchase. Visit theblacktux.com and enter the code UNSPOOLED. All right, that's $20 off your purchase. Visit theblacktux.com and enter the code unspooled people it's great for you to visit the sites that support us because uh then they keep the lights on here so the black tux premium rental suits and tuxedos delivered right to your door no muss no fuss no hassle just good looks okay but while we're talking about about betty and the way that betty talks i do think that betty is putting on an act of being betty like, take the scene where they're walking through the set, right? And they're yeah. kind of arm in arm. And he leans in to give her a kiss. And he goes, you smell nice. And she's like, must be my shampoo. She's doing it again. She's always she's always performing, too. But she's, like, kind of doing, like, bits, right? Like, isn't that, like, I I kind of feel like writers do bits. Like, so I feel like she's always acting and trying to get out. Like, I don't know. There was something funny about that. Like, but I see what you're saying, too. Maybe but I'm. she's not entirely real. It's not, like, right. a debate between, like, real and artifice. I do sort of wish, like, the actress herself was maybe a touch older, just because she's so young. 22, looking, right? Yeah. Baby, she had never heard of Gloria Swanson when she said she'd do this movie. That she's so young that she makes William Holden, I think, look even older. And so she adds to this idea that he's not a young man. Yeah, I, I do believe that this movie would have been just a little bit better if it was a little bit younger. I mean, I think that that's why The Graduate works a little bit better, you know, as far as like seeing that that age difference. Although, funny thing about that kiss, when they finally do kiss in the film, uh, Betty and uh, and Joe, going to the point that Billy Wilder may have been a dick, he just let the kiss continue for a very long time because he knew that uh, William Holden's wife was on set and she yelled out cut because he wouldn't. So they kissed for an obscenely long period of time until she got so furious. <laughs> That's so evil. Also talking about this party scene that he goes to, I love how when even in this black and white cinematography, they're doing really interesting things to make him pop out visually. Like he's the only one in a black tuxedo and it's so black and uh, dark. Yeah. And yes, we're supposed to be looking at the contrast between him and the sweaters, but the color contrast in there, nobody else is wearing anything dark like he is. It pops so well. And then creepy coincidence. You know how he's walking past um, that woman who's on the phone, who's just cracking up on the phone and he's wanting to oh, phone. Oh, yeah. The woman on the phone, that's an actress named Yvette Vickers. I think she was in Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. She's okay, I was going to say, I was kind of bit. drawn to her. I was like, is that like Marilyn Monroe? Like, oh, like, She had like such a look to her. I was like, oh, she's going to be a big star later. Yeah, she pops. And she does become an okay-sized star. Okay. And then here's what happens to her. You know, she gets a mansion in Benedict Canyon, or at least a decent-sized house. And one day, her neighbor goes to the house because they hadn't seen her in a while. And she is dead inside the house. And she'd been dead for a year and what? nobody noticed. That's in no! 2011. They found the laughing girl dead and mummified in her own home, which I just thought and was that such a creepy is, parallel with. Yes, Sunset movie. Boulevard. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Woo! girl. That's Should a we, rough one. Let's hear her laugh. Over by the rainbow room. I'm sorry, Yvette Vickers. May uh, you laugh in peace. And speaking of sets, you said, you know, they walk through that set. You know that uh, Gloria Swanson's house in this film was also used in another famous film, Rebel Without a Cause. 
That's where the kids hang out and party in that mansion. I'd hang out and party there. Oh, my gosh. Me too. The bed was from the silent uh, Phantom of the Opera, her giant crazy bed oh, where it's really? like surrounded by like cherubs and oh, stuff. Oh, I love that bed. Yeah, it's from the one from 1924, which I watched on Filmstruck before it was gone. All right. Oh, RIP Filmstruck. Filmstruck so much. Hopefully Criterion will even be better. And yeah. that opening shot in the pool really was striking to me. I immediately thought, like, how did they do this? Because it's 1950. That's a pretty complicated shot. It's like underwater, and you're getting William Holden, and it just and you're. It's just every bit about it. I was just kind of blown away by it. it. Looked beautiful, and I went and did some research. And apparently, it was not shot from underwater. They had to get the temperature of the pool to 40 degrees, and then they were able to use a mirror and have the camera shoot into a mirror. And so that's basically the mirror reflection of William Holden lying down. So the camera was never even wet, but I just thought that was a a beautiful shot and a great way to kind of figure out how to get that shot. But imagine in 1950 seeing that because it's the first time you'd ever see like a real underwater shot like that. It looks awesome. It really does. And then when they flick the light on at the pool towards the end, we're like, oh no, we're going back to the pool. I know. Dun, dun, dun. He does have to make a bunch of extra steps to get in that pool though. <laughs> Well, it's a big, I, long walk. Well, I respect how when she shoots him for the first time, he doesn't crumple. He actually keeps walking straighter. Yes. He's, like, determined, Ch- determined to, like, to leave. leave on his own two feet. And I appreciate his body performance there. I mean, this is a man who is trying to just, I mean, they took his car and they, they put bullets in him. He just got, he's just got to get out. He's got to get out. But, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that the idea that Joe's not a good writer. You know, right. and and we can't tell. Or is he writing, I mean, do we think that he's not a good writer or he is trying to write something that pleases the person? Because even when he's writing for Norma, he doesn't write what he believes to be true. He just kind of lets her dictate. So he basically writes a shitty version of Salome. But if he really was to care about it, he wouldn't let that happen, you know? But I feel like this is a writer who's just been like, what do you want me to write? Okay, I'll write it, I'll write it. He has no, there's no drive left in him. He's like all, he's all, you know, dried up. I mean, yeah, okay. Listen to the way that he even describes the act of being a screen editor and how much people even care that you exist. Something was the matter, all right. I was thinking about that girl of Artie's, that Miss Schaefer. She was so like all us writers when we first hit Hollywood. Itching with ambition, panning to get your names up there. Screenplay by, original story by. Audiences don't know somebody sits down and writes a picture. They think the actors make it up as they go along. Open your eyes. And what's so what kind of blew my mind about that monologue was here's a writer talking about how actors take all the credit, but an actor saying it. So does it cease to exist? I don't know. Mind blown. Well, I, you know, maybe this is the question. Like, we do get to see his writing in a way in his narration. Right. And is he a good narrator? Like, is his narration really deftly handled or is it a little bit overblown? I think it's a touch overblown. It's oh. like a little bit hacky-ish. I don't know about <laughs> that. I disagree. I feel like, I feel like um, it's very noir. Maybe, <laughs> but I would. But look, I, let me let me say one thing about uh, about it. Like I would say that we see that he's a good writer, or we feel that he's a good writer. I think when he's when he's jamming with Nancy and they're creating the script, he becomes alive. It's the first time we see him not writing for money. He's writing out of passion. And and when we first meet him, he's just writing to pay the bills. Anything, I'll do anything. Give me. I just need that money. Uh, 
And I feel like that's where we have to like look at him there. His narration is just him as a person, but uh, but I think the narration is good. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you there. I don't know. I feel like it's very classic noir narration. I mean, there was an opening scene of Sunset Boulevard that was more of his narration, mm-hmm. where instead of opening in the pool, it was opening with like his corpse getting yes. weeded into the morgue. Yeah. And whatever he was saying, it was like him talking in voiceover to the other corpses in yeah. the morgue was so ridiculous that the people at the test screen just started laughing and well, they had to get rid of it. I heard a little bit of a different story. What did you hear? Okay, the reason why people were laughing at that test screening was because everybody at the morgue, basically all the bodies are at the morgue and they're telling each other why they died. The reason why it was getting laughs was because all the bodies had toe tags on them. And everyone thought that that was like Billy Wilder making a joke. Like these toe ta- these funny toe tags on uh, – people didn't realize that that was like a thing that they did to dead bodies. How do people not know you had toe tags on dead bodies? I mean, 1950, there was, was no like- internet. It was just Ask Jeeves back then. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, so – they were starting to laugh and they weren't paying any attention because they were reading like what was on the toe tag, like almost like it was a Mel Brooks movie or something like that. Like, oh, what are they in here for? What are they in here for? Everyone started laughing more and more and more because it was like, oh, this is a comedy. It's so funny. And uh, maybe it was a combination of both. I would like to ask a person who remembers 1949 before this movie if they knew what a toe tag was. <laughs> I would like to know that. But I want to talk to you about narration in general. Uh, we've watched two Billy Wilder movies on this list. And I think when you would talk to most screenwriting teachers, uh, most uh, film historians, you would say that narration is the thing that people lead you away from doing because, you know, you should be seeing it. And, you know, and and both of these films rely so heavily on narration. What is your thought as a, as a critic? You've watched a lot of these movies. I mean, narration is a tricky thing to land. I mean, my general rule with narration, the kind of guideline, if I had to come up with any guideline that sort of matches how I feel about it from movie to movie, is if the narration is just exactly describing what you can be seeing on screen, then it's worthless. Right. Uh, Because then you can just watch the movie. You can pick it up on screen. If the narration is clashing with what you're seeing on screen and you're realizing that the narrator isn't exactly correct or that they're deluding themselves, that they're trying to lie to you or that something is wrong – If there's a mismatch, I find that interesting. Okay. And so what did you think here? Here's my question. Like, Mm -hmm. because of what he describes in her house, the way it smells, the way he feels Mm -hmm. when he's there, we don't really ever get her side of things. And so we're told so many negative, negative things about her that I think it's really easy just to believe. Right. And so I'm curious about that effect of his narration on the audience to believe that her house really does smell awful. What if it doesn't? He just hates the smell of her perfume. Maybe it's just him. What if you walk in and you're like, it's lovely. Right. So I think that we buy a lot of what we're told of Norma Desmond through him. And I don't think he's that reliable. No, I mean, there's a part of me. I mean, this is a crazy theory that really has no basis to even be said out loud, but I will say it, which is like, is this his whole story that he's made up to kind of tell you about his writer's block? You know, like, is this... Why? Where are you going with this? I I don't know if I really have much of a thing. I was like, did any of this even ever happen? Is he even dead? Is this Billy Wilder telling a story about, you know, the struggles of being a writer? Because it feels so much about writing for yourself versus writing for the man, right? And And the man in this is Norma Desmond. Like, you know... She's making him write this thing. He has no passion for it. He's just doing it because it's making his life easy. And yet then he's 
pulled back, his sense of love. He, he's keep continually being pulled back to his love of Hollywood. It's like the romance between him and Nancy. Sure, it's it it's a love story, but it's based on creative impulses. It's not based on like, you like pasta. I like pasta. You know, it's like, no, they are, they're, they're, they're fueling each other. She's like, your shit, your stuff is shit. She tells him it. And then it kind of gets him a little bit riled up. And she's the only person that's challenging him. So I I almost feel like, you know, this is, you know, what a writer feels like when they're trapped, you know, when they're trapped behind a job where they're not being fulfilled, like Norma's house is this trap, this fun house, this, you know, this fucking house of terrors. And I pulled this clip of, um, of this piano music that made me realize I'm going, this is like old school, like hunchback of Notre Dame horror movie. That is so traditional, like, oh, you know, like the Phantom of the Opera turning. It's like it it is, you know, it's like he is he's being tortured here, you know, but he doesn't know it. I love that scene Mm -hmm. so much because to me, this is such a great example of this film working within kind of the tradition, both of camp to me, camp and horror and also making excuses for it because we realize like. That keyboard is being played by Max. Max is just playing the organ downstairs. He's just happening to choose to be playing creepy music. But you don't know that when the scene starts. You know, the scene starts and he's like, my stuff is here. What is happening? Why is is this going on? The horror movie is beginning. Yeah. And then they come up with an excuse for the horror movie music within the scene. It's almost, it reminded me, I mean, this organ is like very much MVP, uh, most valuable piano of this movie. Because (laughs) here's the sound that he puts under the score or the soundtrack when Max just even ushers him into the living room for the very first time. Oh, right. This is great. Intimate, isn't it? The wind gets in that blasted pipe organ. I ought to have a take now. Oh, that makes me so happy. I love it. <laughs> I mean, when I watched it, I was thinking like, oh, I was like, oh, I could see a modern remake of it. And that's what got me thinking about let the right one in because it it's this idea that there are these reveals, these twists. Like when you find out about Max at the end, it's a twist. And when you find out that she's going to, or not find out, when you see her kill him, it's a twist. You know, the, the end is full of these big reveals. I mean, even the fact that, you know, Joe brings Nancy to the house, it's everything is just boom, 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 boom. It, it, it drives you right to the end. It's true. And I can't help being surprised that a movie that is, to me, really embracing camp and enjoying camp is this high in, in the AFI because I feel like there's sort of this resistance to camp as being like a high quality movie. Because maybe well, he's a, visiting camp, right? Like he's, he's well, not he, in his, camp. His tire broke down at camp. Well, yeah, like I, I really do believe that, like because that house is camp, but Hollywood is in camp. He, he's not camp, but he's in camp. It's like Troop Beverly Hills. Is that what I (laughs) – for the movie to be camp, everyone's got to be in on it. Whereas I think that this character in this world that he's in is that. But he recognizes that. He's a visitor. You're saying that him being such a straight man keeps the film itself from being camp? Yes. Because I I feel like a camp movie, everyone's on the same page. Like if you look at like 
uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, right? That's a camp film, right? You would, uh, you would argue. Well, I'm laying this over um, specifically for me. Uh, Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Okay, that's I'm unfamiliar with. Oh, you're gonna if you like Sunset Boulevard, you're gonna love Baby Jane. Okay, Baby Jane, I might like it even a little better than Sunset Boulevard, really? which. I'm learning to try to be confident in that opinion okay. because I know it's not considered that because I feel like it's such a campy film that it, I always feel embarrassed making an argument for it being terrific. Is Baby Jane something that takes place like Grey Gardens, like in a house with two people, that kind of idea? Yeah. If Did you see Feud or did you know what Feud was? When yes. It's like Joan mm-hmm. Crawford and Betty Davis. Yeah. That's the movie they're making. Right. Where it's very similar to this. You have two icons head to head in this movie. It goes even a little further back in entertainment history because Betty Davis's character was a vaudeville star. And then Joan Crawford was the silent star. And I adore that movie. And to me, I think it's as good as Sunset Boulevard, which I feel like I'm going to get yelled at for, but I I, I don't feel bad about it. I do. I don't. You should not feel bad. I don't know. Do not feel bad about it. A lot of people have agreed with us about the searchers. I've talked to a lot of people about it. Thanks for saying that. Well, it's interesting because I feel like this performance of Norma, the the character of Norma, Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to imagine her as a person who does exist in the real world. Mm -hmm. But there is an interesting moment that happens. I was thinking also about All About Eve, of course, watching Mm -hmm. this. Um, and another look at like an aging actress that came out this year where Gloria Swanson was competing with Betty Davis for this Oscar. And we talked about when we talked about All About Eve about the scenes where Margot Channing is alone and how she changes her personality and is not the grand mistress. Yes. Um, but here, whenever Margot is alone, or at least when she thinks that nobody can hear her, she's actually just the same person, which I thought was interesting. See, no, no, I disagree with that because his narration paints a picture of her, right? He's seeing himself in her. He's disillusioned with himself. So he's like, you know, doing that thing that we all do when we're super bitchy. Like, well, but they're worse than me. But then when you see her like performing her bathing beauty thing or her Charlie Chaplin act, which is actually something she did, uh, Gloria Swanson, uh, there's a joy and an energy to her. And like there's I, I feel like you see her be childlike with him and break it down. But he always keeps his opinion of her at a certain way because he doesn't want to fall in love with her. But even when she's sunbathing by the pool, like there were moments when I felt like I saw her sweet, even when she was like, don't look at me. You know, I have to get ready for bed. Like she has all that stuff on her face. You see her more vulnerable. And then when she's a performing, it's, you know, I, I don't know. There's moments where I felt like I got to see some more of her vulnerability. I mean, everything you're saying is true. I'm not disagreeing with right. any of that. And I really love how much she comes to life once he's at all kind to her. Mm-hmm. And I love her chaplain. She's a good performer. Oh, she's yeah. a very that good chaplain. That chaplain is great. It's an excellent chaplain. Like, the idea that you could watch this and be like, normal, God, she sucks. No, she's great. No, she's actually a very yeah. excellent chaplain. But I was thinking of this scene. This is a scene when Norma walks into Joe's bedroom while he's asleep. And she, like, kind of mumbles and she checks that he's asleep. Then she gives a speech about how she thinks he's cheating on her. And she sounds exactly like how she would sound in front of him. And I thought that was interesting. Here, let's listen. Joe, where were you? Is it a woman? I know it's a woman. Who is she? Why can't I ask you? I must know. I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I no, think that's the only time we see Norma not through his eyes. You are totally correct. And there's a part of me that when I watch it, I go, is she practicing performing there? Is like, you know, because mm-hmm. it is a dramatic moment that she performed it. Like I wrote down every time her hair is down, we see her in a different way. When she's pretending to be the star, we see her perform as the star. But when her hair is down, but I agree with you that that moment, I didn't remember that moment. And it's so performative. But I also feel like 
I think that she wants that, like that drama. I think that she's a dramatic person, but I do think that you see elements of her a little bit more subdued. And I wonder if that had to do with the direction in the film. You know, I, I think that according to Gloria Swanson, she had a very hard time with Billy Wilder. She said, I believe Billy Wilder just doesn't like women. Um, Billy Wilder has only been effusive about her, that she was very prepared. She came to set and was willing to do the work. I mean, okay, those those compliments are actually not total compliments. Those are like, she worked very hard. They're not like, she's great. There's a slight difference. <laughs> All right, yeah, she did right. what I said very, very well. <laughs> I mean, those, one of the stories I heard was that um, Billy Wilder, take this as you will, mm-hmm. Um, liking women or not, was convinced that she, uh, that her character, Norman Desmond, had been fucking the monkey. And, like, people aren't quite sure if he's kidding or not, but he said it so much it doesn't seem like a joke. What? But, yeah, when she's, like, standing there, like, bereaving the monkey, he kept yelling, like, remember, that's your lover. Remember, that is your lover. I don't think he sounded like that. He kept screaming it at her. And he kept it up to the point that I think in the 80s at some time, um, he was around Nancy Reagan. He was like, yeah, she was fucking the monkey. And Nancy was just like, what are you talking that about? That is insane. You talking about what this film has to say about writers and the act of writing. I find that so interesting because, you know, we think of this as the movie about actresses, but you're really interested in the writer through line. And it almost does feel like Billy Wilder wants to complain about all the difficulty he had writing. We talked so much on the double yeah. identity episode about what a pain it was for him making that movie. And that he wants to bitch about what it's like to be a writer in Hollywood, but he just shunts off all the attention on what it's like to be around an actress? Well, yeah. To me, I feel like he's saying, oh, these actresses are such a pain in the ass. You know, the writer, the, you you basically killed a writer. I mean, that's a person who died at the end. Norma Desmond doesn't die. The writer does. I think he made a movie that so cleanly and clearly nailed Hollywood, you know, whether it's Cecil B. DeMille being one way to her, to her face, and another way behind her back. And I love that little side note that they're just calling for her car. Like, all these just shows Hollywood for what it actually is. Uh, That when people first saw this film, I mean, they were blown away. I mean, there's a... I'll let Billy Wilder tell you what happened after their first screening. But any case, after it was finished, Mr. Mr. Louis B. Mayer, having seen that at at the showing at Paramount... I heard him talking to his uh, henchmen, their whole group of, of Louis B. Mayer people. He says, that son of a bitch Wilder, he says, he's a foreigner, he says. He, we let him in. We, 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 gave him, we, gave him, we gave him a life, we gave him a family, and now he's biting the hand that's been feeding him. And I, I, I got up to him and the, 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 the retinue of his... He says, Mr. Louis B. Mayer, why don't you go and fuck yourself? My name is Wilder, and I did it, and I'm very proud of it. And I love that <laughs> attitude. Like, I, I could watch Billy Wilder interviews all day. He's lovely and wonderful. Cameron Crowe wrote this book, great book about uh, Billy Wilder called Conversations with Wilder, where he just gets into every little detail with him. But I just love the fact that he was so confident. I mean, this, in many respects, this could have wrecked his career, this movie. I mean, because he could have been shunned from Hollywood, the same way we talked about Citizen Kane, you know, when it reveals too much or, you know, or it shows something, but the movie wasn't out of control. It wasn't really over budget. It was, you know, it's an inside baseball movie. You have a movie like The Player, which I guess you can closely compare this to in the grand scheme of things. It, could, it you know, up in Hollywood uh, or Mulholland Drive, which, I mean, it's a David Lynch film, so that's a whole other thing. But 
you know, this is a mainstream big budget movie that could have blacklisted him in a way if they if he felt like he was insulting too many people or maybe I don't know I, that that I thought it was a risky move to make this movie. You're right. It, like I'm trying to put myself in 1950 because I don't know if this is like happening to anybody else like out there listening to this or to you, Paul. But like I've always thought of this movie so much as just a fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, like a nightmare fairy tale. Well, that's about what I was Hollywood like, because we're watching it in the present day and it yeah. seems so far away. So that's why a lot of what's fascinated me about it is going back and realizing how fresh and relevant it was to people watching it. Yeah, it it feels so real. And I mean, I think that this conversation in the film seems so out there in 1950, but you could put this in a movie right now today and it would work perfectly. Here you go. You really gonna send that script to DeMille? Yes, I am. This is the day. Here's a chart from my astrologer. She read DeMille's horoscope, she read mine. She read the script? DeMille is Leo. I'm Scorpio. Mars have been transiting Jupiter for weeks. Today is the day of the greatest conjunction. And I just love that, like, she's basing things on astrology. She's, you know, there's that, you could put that in the comeback. You could put that in anything that takes the piss out of Hollywood. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's totally right. That's... Nothing has changed. I would love to know what that means. If anybody out there who's a better horoscopist than I, I can explain. I can find out what that means. I have a friend. <laughs> she's amazing. She can find out what that means. There's one other little similarity that I noticed. I know we haven't talked about this film yet, but did you notice the similarity between The Apartment and this film? Go on. That the head of the studio in this movie is named Sheldrake. Which is Fred McMurray's character in The Apartment, another kind of intimidating boss man who's, you know, has a lot of power over this guy who's just trying to make it up the ladder and basically, you know, uh, just kind of screws him over a I little mean, it's bit. funny because when I think of intimidating last names, I would not put Sheldrake at the top. Now I'm only thinking of Sheldrake as uh, an intimidating <laughs> name. Okay, wait, but talking about William Holden's looks, do you think he looks like a very skinny John Cena? Wow. Now that you say it, I love it. I was thinking he looks like a more attractive John Wayne. Whoa. John Wayne was super hot, by the way, when he was young. Oh, I'm just saying it was what caught my mind. Maybe I have John Wayne on the brain right now after, like, these three cowboy movies that we have, or two cowboy movies with a cameo cowboy movie in it. Speaking of names, this movie name-dropped a lot of people. Some people agreed to have their name dropped. Some people did not. Uh, so uh, Daryl Zanuck. Uh, Tyrone Power, Olivia D. Haviland, and Samuel Goldwyn all said, please don't use my name. Uh, but Wilder— Connecting to Feud, Olivia's suing because she's in Feud. Oh, right. Oh, like, my gosh. Feud should have known, man. She's always been mad about this. So, Paul, it is time to welcome our guest for this week into the studio. And I'm so happy she's here. She's— a lovely old friend of mine and a film genius. Her name is Alicia Malone. She's a host of Turner Classic Movies. She's written two books. Two books. <laughs> the Female Gaze is her newest one. And also, she wrote Backwards in Heels. Alicia, welcome. Thank you guys for having me. This is uh, so much fun. I'm a big fan of the podcast. So well, we are a big fan here. of you. This is great. <laughs> I mean, this film of Sunset Boulevard is a classic. And I feel like it deals with Hollywood in a way that was incredibly realistic for 1950, or at least mm-hmm. it felt that way to me. I mean, is this kind of breaking bounds at the time for showing Hollywood like 
all scars and all, I guess, whatever that phrase is. Yeah, well, there were a couple of films about Hollywood before this, including, of course, A Star is Born, which you can draw many comparisons with this film. But this was a really dark take on the industry. And reportedly, Louis B. Mayer, who was the head of MGM at the time, was really upset with Billy Wilder for creating this film, said he should be tarred and feathered and drove out of Hollywood (laughs) for showing this side of it. And I think it's really interesting in that it both looks at the time of, you know, these silent film stars and how they were pushed to the side once sound came in. And it also speaks to the time in which the film was made, which so much was happening, including the crumbling of the studio system, the end of the studio contracts, and you feel all of that in this film. And that is interesting to kind of set it in that time context to where, like, that scene where... um Norman Desmond is sort of looking at it, how much of Paramount she used yeah. to have just as her dressing room. And there's that weird moment where Max is like, my studio was lined in black latex. Yeah. Like, <laughs> how, wow. But the idea Max. of how cheap they were by 1950 in terms of how nobody had luxury anymore, how they're already building in the sense of like financial collapse or, or yeah. corporatization. Yeah, well, there was the antitrust lawsuit that happened in 1948, which was United States versus Paramount Pictures. They were the scapegoat, but it went for all the studios because they started to dominate every part of the business and it wasn't, it wasn't what. Uh, you know, the government wanted. Uh, but also I think it's interesting that moment in Paramount because Gloria Swanson was a huge star at Paramount back when it was called Famous Players Lasky. And so in, in a sense she did help to build Paramount and Paramount was built on stars, but by 1950 that was starting to go away. I mean, sometimes I feel a little bad for Gloria Swanson in this movie because we remember her now for this movie for being a failure when she was not that at all. No. You know, we don't really remember her actual films. Yeah, she was someone who did manage to make that transition from silent films to sound, which not many stars could. It was a really difficult thing. They had to alter their acting style. You know, Gone was that big pantomime-style acting that they did in silent films. I think that kind of over-the-top acting style works perfectly for the character of Norma Desmond. But Gloria Swanson herself, she remained working, like, well into her old age. Uh, she started in 1914 when she was a teenager. She died at the age of 84. She was still really famous, still really fit, still really attractive. So this is really a, a caricature of that kind of silent film star, but definitely not her exactly. Although there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. You know, they said that this movie is obviously an amalgamation of a lot of different silent film stars, whether it's Mary Pickford or Clara Bow or Mae Murray. Is there any character that you see coming out of Norma Desmond. Yeah, it definitely is an amalgamation of so many kinds of stars that didn't manage to make the transition to sound and and how sad that must be to go from being really famous one minute to discarded the next. Uh, Clara Bow is someone who really sticks out to me in my mind because I just rewatched The Wild Party from 1929 and that was an early talkie film and you could see that Clara was really struggling with being able to act and remember the microphone and tone down her actions. <laughs> but an interesting note is that on that film, the director, Dorothy Arzner, who was the only female filmmaker working in Hollywood at the time because the transition from silent films to sound films also hurt a lot of female directors. They went by the wayside. She ended up creating the boom microphone to wow. help Clara Bow because Clara was struggling in remembering to stand around the microphone. And so she had the great idea, Dorothy Arzner, of putting putting a microphone on the end of a fishing rod 
and then getting the crew to follow Clara while, wow. while she walked and talked. And so, therefore, that ended up becoming the boom microphone. Well, we just said that female directors kind of went by the wayside when talkies came out. Why, why did mm-hmm. that happen? It was several things all at once. It, you know, it was the, the Great Depression meant that movies suddenly had to become profitable and make money. Uh, the, the success of the jazz singer, which was created by the Warner Brothers, really set them up as a huge studio, made it hard for the independent studios run by women to compete. Uh, banks started coming into town and lending money, and they, of course, felt more comfortable lending money to men rather than women. The studio system started to be formed and men started hiring men like their their nieces, I mean, so their nephews or their cousins or their, you know, sons-in-law and it became a real big boys club. And uh, a lot of female directors, like some male directors, struggled with just being able to create sound films. So the change was so great that, for example, at Universal Pictures, which had the most female directors working at the time, they think they had about 11 on a regular basis, went from that in the mid-20s to not hiring a single female director till 1982. Whoa! 1982? Yeah. And it feels like we forget that, you know, people like Gloria Swanson... They weren't just actresses. They were also, like, very heavily involved in, like, Mm -hmm. the financing. And a lot of the Mary Pickford herself was, like, majorly not just an actress, but somebody behind the screen, you know, staging it, being a woman used to having control and then losing control. Exactly. Which is so ironic because, like, Gloria Swanson was, you know, like, dating Joseph P. Kennedy, (laughs) JFK's dad, who was, like, part of this whole banker movement that was, like, regimenting Hollywood as a boys club. And she was trying to get money out of him to make her own movies, but it didn't help. I know, and and she went, Gloria Swanson went to United Artists, which was set up by many actors, including Mary Pickford, to get more creative control over her career. But I do think that women in particular seem to suffer the most in Hollywood. And there are rule breakers, which I think maybe that is, I find that this little niggling thing that I find a little unfair about Sunset Boulevard is how judgmental it can sometimes be about Norma Desmond when mm-hmm. she was a brave, brave woman, as even DeMille says. He sticks up for her as being like a woman with a lot of heart because you had to be brave to be a silent film star. Yeah, and I love their relationship in real life. You know, she did call him Mr. DeMille throughout their whole career together. And uh, she wrote about him in her autobiography and she wrote something like, he wore his boldness like an expensive hat, as if it were out of the question for him to have hair like other men. <laughs> you know, a lot of I people... I want to take that into my life now. <laughs> and I love about how when they asked Mae West to be in this, Mae yeah. West couldn't wrap her head around the idea that people wouldn't think she was just obviously hot and like, what's so weird about her getting a bunch of men? And she was 60 at the time and just so confident. She was like, what's what's weird about this? Of course I'd have a younger lover. Why wouldn't I? Yeah, hey, Wes. I best. love that. <laughs> I mean, where does this movie fall for you? You know, obviously you've seen thousands of movies. <laughs> you know, does this stand out to you in any way? It does. And it's the kind of movie that every time I watch it, I get something different out of it. Like when I was a teenager, I watched this film. I did something similar to what you guys are doing. I got out a list of kind of the greatest films of all time and decided to watch all of it. I had some sense of the Hollywood industry from reading books, but I didn't really know too much about it. So then when I moved over here to Los Angeles and I watched it again, that was a different experience, seeing the city and trying to place where everything was happening. And then after working in the film industry or around the film industry, now watching it, it's a whole new experience. And I just rewatched it last night. 
And I enjoyed it just as much, if not more, now that I've been diving more into the silent films and now that I've done more research into this side of film history. I was kind of surprised to see that after this film, Gloria Swanson doesn't have a resurgence, mm-hmm. you know, because she's so fantastic. You would think like everyone would be jumping to be like, oh, we'll put her in this movie, put her in this. But but she really kind of just does one other film and then, you know, then shows up like 20 years later in something else, so, you know, in a very small part. What do you think that was? I think that has a lot to do with age and, and right. Hollywood. You know, it seems to be the case often that we allow these great performances from women as they get older, but it's kind of like, well, we let you do that and you did your thing now, now go back home and stay in your box. And we see that kind of thing happen with, say, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford as they got older and they did what whatever happened to Baby Jane, but they still struggled after that to get even more roles. So just because you get the one great role as a woman when you're older doesn't mean it's going to continue from there. Whereas William Holden, that was really the beginning of his career. And then he went on to great heights after that. Can you tell us a little bit about your newest book? Because I, I, I'm very excited to read it, but I want everyone else to know about this book because I think it's a great topic to talk about. And I feel like uh, yeah, so tell me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. After I wrote Backwards and in Heels, that was about the history of women in Hollywood, I kept getting asked the same question, which was, okay, so how can I, as an audience member, support women in Hollywood and let people know that we want to see more opportunities for female directors? And so I always say, watch their movies, because every stream, every download, every tickets sold really sends a message to Hollywood. So I decided to put together a list of some of my favourite movies directed by women. And I kept it to directing. I was going to do writing, cinematography as well. There's so many things I could do, but just in the interest of time, kept it to write, um, directing. But then I was able to have so many other great film critics that I admire, like Amy right here, mm-hmm. give their own essay, their own mini piece on a film that they love directed by women. So it's not just my voice to end up with 52 different films directed by women so you could do one a week if you want to do the women in film challenge Uh, but hopefully it just gets people thinking and it gets on their coffee tables and if you're stuck for what to watch you can reach for that and see something completely different and support women it's true now i did penelope spheres the decline of western civilization part one and two i love those movies so much they're not eligible for the afi list because they're documentaries Mm. But there are zero female-directed films on the AFI list. And, you know, what do you think could get on if we ever do another AFI list? Well, I think that there are so many films that should be part of this list, so many filmmakers that should be represented. Dorothy Arzner absolutely is one. And uh, my favourite film of hers is Dance Girl Dance from 1940, which stars uh, Lucille Ball and Maureen O'Hara. And this was Lucille Ball, one of her first movies, and really made her a big star. And it speaks a lot about women and entertainment. But it's a great film. Or you have Ida Lupino, The Hitchhiker, which I also talk about in my book. That was the first film noir really directed by a woman in the studio system. She was an actress turned director. And then when you get that to movie the is 70s. So good, by the way, if so I could good. just jump in, I just saw so it. Tense. It's for free right now on the internet on Tubi. And it's like oh, wow. dark and wonderful. I'm so glad I love it. And, movie. you know, not many or any female characters in there. It's a very masculine story. And it is definitely a film noir. And then when you get to the 70s, people like Elaine May. I mean, yeah. Mikey and Nikki, I would put on there. I mean, I think that this list really represents who we allow to create film culture and what ends up being on the canon and then what ends up being studied. Because obviously these lists are 
perfect for people who are trying to get into classic film and don't right. know where to start. But if we exclude female directors, then we're just excluding them from history. And that's yeah. not right at all. Well, it's, my wife said something that always stuck out to me, and it kind of ties to the title of your book, which is we saw Wonder Woman together. And, you know, she loved it so much. And we were talking about it and she just said, you know, I think one of the things that I loved about this movie was seeing this woman not through a male gaze. Like, you you know, so it was she was never sexualized, but she was powerful. And it was like and when she said that, it was something that it's always stuck out to me. It's like, oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. When you when you look back on all, you know, these badass like women in movies, most of the time it's a very, you know, it's, it's through a male perspective mm-hmm. and it's very sexualized. It's yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's been one of the most difficult things is because film is so important to me. It's given me so much in my life, but I've had to also grapple with how much of a damage it's done on my own self-esteem. Yeah. Seeing this volume of films where women are shunted to the side, where they're treated as objects, where they're sexualized, and you can't help comparing yourself to what's on screen, it just gets in there subconsciously, let alone if you're a person of colour and you don't see yourself represented on screen. I think that's why it's so important that we talk about these films and study a wider variety of movies and let more people in. It's true, and even thinking about that, even thinking about the scene here in the movie where Max was like, yes, when movies started, there were three major directors. There was DeMille, there was Griffith, and there was me. Yeah. I would, now that, I'm, now that we're talking, I'm like, oh, what about Lois Weber? She was yeah. the highest paid, biggest blockbuster director ever, left out of this movie in 1950, left out of the conversation until now. Exactly. What about Alice Guy Blachey, the one of the very first filmmakers in the whole entire world, who was just as innovative as Griffith? I mean, there's so many examples of that. And we can even go back one step further and just say, like, I think that if you look at this list, there's not many silent films on this list. I mean, that's a huge part of, if you're saying the 100 best, you know, films, that should include silent films. That shouldn't just include two or three. There's some Chaplin films later on from when there was sound. We have Sunrise coming up, which I can't wait to. We have The General, but it's pretty thin. It's pretty thin. I mean, three out of 100. (laughs) But this is just fantastic talking to you. and, 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 you know, I feel like this story feels more like today than it than it ever does. I mean, you know, all the references, all the way that Hollywood is, it it, it is the same. You know, I think it it shows of something that I could relate to uh so much. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Well thank you guys for having me. It's Thanks for always a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> so the 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 two books just before we go, The Female Gaze and Backwards and in Heels. Yeah. All right, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Obviously this movie is a classic were there any, you know, negative reactions to this film? There were, actually. There were. And this is from a guy named Philip Hamburger. He wrote mm-hmm. for The New Yorker at the time. Uh, I'll read clips of it because, actually, when I was going through his review, most of it is just plot summary. And okay. he hates this movie, but I find a little unclear into why. Or he doesn't really prove it. I thought it was actually a kind of badly written review. Uh, but here are the highlights of Philip Hamburger's pan of Sunset Boulevard. He writes in his opening line, Not the least unfortunate aspect of Sunset Boulevard, a pretentious slice of Rockfort starring Gloria Swanson, is the fact that the narrator is a corpse. And then there's like 400 words of plot summary where he describes the entire thing up until the ending. And he's just like padding his runtime. And he just closes out with basically this. Since Sunset Boulevard contains the germ of a good idea, it's a pity that it wasn't better written. He calls it then a tone poem that substitutes snappy photography and dialogue for what could have been a genuinely moving tragedy. Which is interesting. I'm wondering about a, a version of this film that was genuinely moving, um, mm. like genuinely, deeply, right, right. deeply, yes. complicatedly. 
Uh, he says, Philip Hamburger, it seemed to me that the authors never quite made up their minds whether they were with Miss Desmond or against her. There are moments when they appear to have a healthy cynicism toward Hollywood, past and present, but before the film is over, it is quite evident that they have a pretty unhealthy contempt for aging stars. He compliments all the actors, but he says their combined, highly skilled efforts cannot cover up the essential hollowness of this enterprise. Interesting. I feel like whenever I read a review that swipes at something so major, like if you're looking for a dramatically moving story, there is a version of this to tell. I feel like it consciously isn't going there. I mean, I would love to see that too. And I think you could tell the story that way. It's it's not that. And I always get hung up on reviews that say like, I wish it was this. I was like, well, no, but it it's not. I think you can say that when it's not when it's going for that and fails. Like, this movie decidedly is not going in that direction. Yeah, you know? I would love to see that version, too, though. I Absolutely. get it. When I was reading I was yeah. like, I would love to see the compelling Marlon Brando acted human version yes. of this film. But you're right, it's not this film. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really, yeah, but it's, it's an interesting point for another film. Um, now, did The Simpsons ever reference Sunset Boulevard? I have to imagine that it will break our streak this week. Oh, the Simpsons did not reference it. Whoa. I don't know what is happening. The Zodecahedron no... is really creating these interesting power shifts for us. I thought for sure. For sure. For sure. They don't yeah. have a balcony scene in the show? We'll go Nothing. Ahead. Come on. The closest I could find was from an interview that Matt Groening did with Nathan Rabin uh, from okay. The Onion when yeah. he was at The Onion. Love Nathan. Um, where Nathan asks him about how he saw on Matt's Wikipedia entry that when he first moved to L.A., he worked as a biographer for an elderly director. And he uh-huh. asks him what it was like. Um, Matt Groening says, yeah, I worked for this 93-year-old guy. Calling him a movie director is probably a little exaggerated. It's true he directed a couple B-Westerns, but he was mostly a behind-the-scenes guy. He didn't have much of a career. Uh, But that he had seen this ad in the LA Times that said, wanted writer-chauffeur. And then Matt Groening says this, and I had seen Billy Wilder's movie Sunset Boulevard, so I knew what I was in for. I got the job. Wow. And then Nathan says, was he a Norman Desmond-like figure? And he says, well, a little bit. I remember buying him his nightly steak at the Gourmet Chalet on the corner of Sunset in Fairfax and paying more for the piece of meat than I made in two days. Whoa. So he lived Sunset Boulevard, but he he didn't ever reference it that I can tell. So interesting because it's such an iconic film in so many ways. Yeah. You know who did, and I don't like to pull stuff from other stuff yeah. because I don't want to like expand yes. our, our Simpsons yes. narrow trajectory. But this is a live thing. It wasn't from a TV show. This is the Muppets, when the Muppets got their star on the Walk of Fame. We're just really happy to be here on the Hollywood Boulevard today, uh, joining some of the greatest names in showbiz, right guys? Yeah, like Milton Berle. Yeah, like John Knox. Edgar Bergen. And Judge Judy. Actually, thinking Norma Desmond is a fictional uh, star. That's great. I love it. (laughs) Always welcome a Muppets clip. Um, Now, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the extra life that Sunset Boulevard has, which is this musical. Like, I didn't see it, but people love this musical. She won a Tony Award for it. It was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber, but the musical is actually in production or the idea to make it into a musical started back in 1957 and they wanted, you know, they wanted uh, Gloria Swanson to be in it. I love that. I mean, Gloria, she had energy, man. She always wanted to do a Sunset Boulevard, the musical. She was trying to do it right after this movie came out. So crazy. It's so crazy. Let's listen to a little bit of Glenn Close because to me, Glenn Close, 
I worry that she could be at risk of being forgotten because this woman has not yet won an Oscar. She has been trying to win an Oscar for the so wife, long. The wife. Every year she does something worthy of an Oscar. Every year she gets shut out just the way Gloria did. You know, when Gloria lost the Oscar to um, Judy Holiday, she whispered in her ear, like, couldn't you have waited till next year? Oh. And I wonder... I mean, I don't want Glenn to have to get to that position because Glenn has deserved an Oscar and has never quite gotten it. But let's listen to her sing because she's an amazing singer. With one look, you'll know all you need to know. With one look, all I'll return to my glory I'm saying for good, I'll be back where I was born to be. With one look, I'll be mad. And you know what? That was Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, but Stephen Sondheim also tried to make it into a musical, but stopped after he approached Billy Wilder at a party and said, I want to make this. And Billy Wilder said, you can't make it into a musical. It needs to be an opera. And that was it. And so he's like, okay, you got it. I won't do it. And besides launching musicals, this also has an interesting connection. We mentioned earlier Mulholland Drive. David Lynch uh, plays the character Gordon Cole uh, in Twin Peaks, which is the character that uh, Cecil B. DeMille calls, the guy who wants uh, who wants Norma Desmond's car. And a clip of Sunset Boulevard was actually played in Twin Peaks The Return. It actually wakes up Agent Dale Cooper from his slumber because David Lynch has said that this is one of his favorite films. So another way that this movie keeps on uh, influencing the world, not The Simpsons, but at least Twin Peaks, which is kind of like the live action version of The Simpsons. You know, we talk so much about that final line, her big monologue at the end. I'm ready for my close-up. But the part I really want to play is just a minute before that as she's starting to walk down the stairs. Because I really like the Max character, to be honest. Yeah. There's an argument that he's maybe responsible for all of this because he's been gaslighting her into thinking he was more famous. And maybe if he dealt with her more directly, she wouldn't be acting like this. Who knows? But what I find so beautiful about her walking down this staircase is Max, you hear it in his voice. He goes from trying to be her butler helping her just get through this to being her director for the very last time, her really ex-husband. coming full circle. I mean, yeah, to this being is... a whole man, and I love that change in him and his performance. I mean, Stroham called this just like that butler role, but I find well, this he hated scene being associated with the movie because so he had to do so many butler roles after that he could never <sighs> be seen not as the butler. But well, yes, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? But, but he's fantastic. Let's listen to him directing her. Quiet, everybody. Are you ready, Norma? What is the scene? Where am I? This is the staircase of the palace. Oh, yes. Yes. Down below, they're waiting for the princess. All right. Cameras. So, Amy, the movie is 16 on the AFI's 2007 list and 12 on the OG list. Um, I have to say that I feel like this definitely belongs on the list. Uh, Of the films that we've seen, it's something that is definitely higher 
uh, up for me. I think it, you know, it feels like this and double indemnity together. You know, I don't know if I need to put them so closely together. They're both great. Maybe I would move this above double indemnity. I don't know. Now I'm arguing that in my head because double indemnity is such a classic noir story. This has elements of noir, but I think it's a little bit different than noir. I I don't know. I I, I like it. I'm going to say a little too high. That's my gut. I'm just going with my gut at this moment. I'm not saying it needs to be dropping, you know, tens and tens of points. I'm just saying, but maybe a little bit too high. Yeah. I mean, this might be a crazy thing to say, and I'll try to explain it in the most clear way. So I sound like I'm making some sort of human sense, but I feel that if this movie with the quality that it has, with the wit that it has, the style that it has, if it was not about Hollywood itself, mm-hmm. it would not be so high. And I know that there's no way to piece that really apart. Right. I know that what I'm saying sounds insane, but I do think because Hollywood loves the referential movies about itself, it is higher than a movie of comparable things about insurance salesmen in Kansas would be. Okay. That's not, I don't know what that even means. I'm just saying that. Right, uh, no, I understand. Yeah, no. my head as I talk. Well, I wonder if... Because it nailed Hollywood so perfectly, it's why it's on the list. Because, you know, most people who are voting on this list don't know what it's like to be an insurance salesman in Kansas. So they don't see, like, they can't go, that movie is so true. Like, I, I you know, where I, maybe it's easier to get on this list because, like, oh, yeah, I, this is true. I, I look at this movie and go, this is true. This is, I, I recognize this as the Hollywood that is existing of this day. So there is a relevance to it that, the people who are voting on this can time-testedly say, like, yep, still works. You know, and I think maybe they, that's a good point about how these movies kind of get up there. Yeah, I mean, I think there's nothing Hollywood loves more than commemorating Hollywood. But this movie is great. This movie is great. I am surprised that it's so beloved. You know, given Really? What would just, you pick, this or Singing in the Rain? Go quick, gut reaction. I won't uh, hold you to it. Singing in the Rain, I guess. I think I would go, too. I think I would go yeah. Singing in the Rain, too. I And that's a gut, like, if you gun to my head. Gut, total gut. And then that's part of me being like, is there a world where I would put, some, where I would put, where I would put, oh, my God. Silas, so yeah, that is part of me being like, is there a world where I would put Baby Jane on this instead? And maybe, so that's just in the back of my head. Well, in my I, mind, there's a lot more Billy Wilder to come. We've already had Billy Wilder, so... Singing in the Rain, I think, is a very unique picture that deals with a similar topic. Uh, not that you only can have one topic. God knows we have a million Vietnam movies. All right, Amy, <laughs> let's roll that die. I'm going to roll this die. Are you ready? I cannot wait. And the winner is 33. 33 is... One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson, directed by Milos Forman. Um... I am very excited to rewatch this film. I, I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember really loving it when I saw it. Well, you remember that there's a Nurse Ratchet, don't you? Of course. I mean, there's going to be a whole new FX series about it. Oh, yeah, that's right. With Sarah Paulson. Yeah. That's so cool. Ah, I I'm love Very so excited much. about that. Okay, well, then how about this for a call-in? Mm-hmm. I want to hear from the listeners of Unspooled who their favorite evil nurse or doctor Nurse or doctor, mm-hmm. medical professional, got it. Dentist, if you got it. Mm-hmm. Who their favorite evil person of medicine is? Eric LaSalle from ER. Done. <laughs> the evilest doctor of them all. <laughs> if you got an evil podiatrist, I'm open to hear about that. Yeah, this is not your real life podiatrist, though. This is uh, one that has to be filmed in some in some manner. You don't want like real life podiatrist gossip. That sounds interesting. You know what? Yeah, if you got a good podiatrist dirt. 
Bring it. Bring it. <laughs> All right. So your favorite evil doctor in the movies. Our phone number is, as always, 747-666-5824. 747-666-5824. Well, you said that just like an ad for, like, medical insurance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will see you next week for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is available pretty much everywhere you can stream film. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Ah, uh, yes. I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. Ah! Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah.